So we have been in the book of Jonah, and uh, what have we learned about Jonah so far? Anyone want to help? Okay, big fish, yep. Yeah, Cameron? He was a prophet? He didn't want to go to Nineveh. Right, so Jonah, it's a short little book in the Old Testament. It's about a guy who is a prophet. God tells him to go to a city called Nineveh, and God wanted Jonah to go and preach to the Ninevites. Jonah thought that that didn't make any sense because the Ninevites were Israel's enemies. So Jonah, what did he do? He found a ship. It was sailing in the opposite direction, and he tried to run away from God. And it's been said that if you do try to run away from God, if you try to pursue the path of sin and disobedience, well, sin takes you farther than you plan to go. It costs you more than you plan to pay. It keeps you there longer than you plan to stay. And Jonah finds that out. His disobedience leads him straight into a raging storm. And he's hurled overboard into the sea. But God mercifully provides a fish that swallows Jonah. And he's in the fish for three days and three nights that saves his life. And as we saw last week, uh, chapter 2 ends with the fish vomiting Jonah onto dry land. So he survived the storm, he survived the fish, and now chapter 3 tells us what will happen next. So, actually, if I can grab a volunteer to help pass out the um, text for tonight. If you guys haven't been to Thrive for a couple of weeks, you may not know that what we've done is we're actually giving you guys a copy of the passage so that you can mark it up, you can look at it for yourself, and then discuss it in small groups. Thank you, Claire. Great. So uh, first thing I'm going to do is I'm just going to read this whole, whole passage, and then I'm just going to point out a couple of things for you guys to observe, and then you can go deeper in your small groups looking at this chapter. Sound good? Uh, I do not have pens, but maybe another wise person in this room has brought pens. Um, I am not that wise person. All right, so let me just read this chapter, Jonah chapter 3. The Lord's message came to Jonah a second time. Go immediately to Nineveh, that large city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah went immediately to Nineveh in keeping with the Lord's message. Now Nineveh was an enormous city. It required three days to walk through it. Jonah began to enter the city by going one day's walk, announcing, at the end of 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. The people of Nineveh believed in God. And they declared a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat on ashes. He issued a proclamation and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, no human or animal, cattle or sheep is to taste anything. They must not eat and they must not drink water. Every person and animal must put on sackcloth and must cry earnestly to God. And everyone must turn from their evil way of living and from the violence that they do. Who knows? Perhaps God might be willing to change his mind and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we might not die. When God saw their actions, that they turned from their evil way of living, God relented concerning the judgment he had threatened them with and did not destroy them. Yeah, that's right. So, okay, this is an astonishing story. Um, anybody catch anything in this chapter that just sort of seemed astonishing to you? God relented. God relented. Yeah, say a little more about that. 
Just. Yeah, okay. So God is threatening the city of Nineveh with judgment because they're a city of violence and injustice. You know, God's a God who cares about justice. And he relents. That's one astonishing thing. Anyone else have anything that they noticed that was particularly striking in this chapter? Yeah, Tristan? The animals and the cattle are not allowed to eat. Yeah. Well, and all of those things that have been mentioned connect to what, in my mind, is one of the biggest surprises of all, which is that Nineveh repents. <laughs> this is a revival story. I mean, just to give you a perspective on how crazy this story is, you know, imagine, like, if you, like, went into Pioneer Square in downtown Seattle and just started, like, preaching the gospel, and imagine if, like, the entire city of Seattle repented and turned to Jesus. I mean, that is kind of like what happens in this story. So, as we're looking at this tonight, as you're looking at it in small groups, what I want to do is I want to help you by just noticing three things that explain how did this happen. Three things that go into this incredible revival that happens in Nineveh. So how, you know, how, how did it happen? Well, let's look at that. So uh, let me go back to the, the beginning here. Uh, look at the first four verses. I'm going to read those just one more time. It says, The Lord's message came to Jonah a second time. Go immediately to Nineveh, that large city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah went immediately to Nineveh in keeping with the Lord's message. Now Nineveh was an enormous city. It required three days to walk through it. Jonah began to enter the city by going one day's walk, announcing, at the end of 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. So what's happened here? What's happened here is that Jonah obeys God. He obeys this time. He goes to Nineveh and he preaches. This, by the way, is why a man named Bruce Anstey once gave this little outline of Jonah that I've been giving you each week. Uh, just so that way you kind of refresh your memory. Chapter 1, you see Jonah is a paying man. He pays a fare to get on the ship to run away from God. Disobedience always costs you something. Chapter 1, he's a paying man. Chapter 2, he's a praying man. We're going to see in chapter 4, he actually turns out to be a pouting man. But here in chapter 3, we now have a preaching man. Jonah obeys. He goes to Nineveh and he preaches. But notice his little sermon here in verse 4. At the end of 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. This is a pretty terrible sermon. Do you notice that there's no call to repentance in his sermon? There's no message of salvation. It doesn't even mention God. <laughs> it's just, you know, just nothing more than a warning of judgment. I mean, if you were to like rank this little sermon that Jonah preaches, you could almost say that it's the worst sermon ever. And the amazing thing is that this entire city turns to God. So that's what you see in verse 5. It says, the people of Nineveh believed in God and they declared a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. So sackcloth was a special kind of clothing for repenting. And in fact, in verse 8, you even find out that even the cows wear sackcloth. So not even just the, the Ninevites, but like even all the animals are like repenting, putting on sackcloth. So the impact of Jonah's puny, you know, half-hearted little sermon is so huge, it's 
almost comical. It's almost comical. And it's a demonstration, by the way, of how only God can make a masterpiece out of the materials that he's given to work with. That's true of Jonah, who's a disobedient prophet, and yet God uses him. That's true of us. God can take the messy pieces of our lives, and he can use them and redeem them. But even more, this is a story that's a demonstration of the power of the word of God. And that's the first thing uh, to notice in this chapter tonight. Notice the power of the word of God. So Jonah's sermon is pretty short. In English, it's 10 words. In Hebrew, it actually is just five words. But that's all it takes to bring an entire city to its knees. And that's a demonstration of how God's word is, it's God's power in verbal form, as someone once said. That's how powerful God's word is. Uh, you know, I heard a story once about a group of refugees that had come from a Southeast Asian country. And they had come to the United States and they had somehow gotten connected to, to a church. Uh, and, you know, if I remember correctly, they didn't really have very much of uh, a, a religious or Christian, at least, uh, Christian background. But there was a, an, a, a, some sort of Bible study that they were doing at that, that church. And one day they were studying the story of when Jesus calms the storm from the Gospels. Maybe you know that story. They're out in the storm, the, Jesus and the disciples. There's, uh, you know, they're, they're all worried they're going to die. Uh, and then Jesus stands up and he rebukes the storm and the, 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 the waves instantly become calm. Well, they're studying that story and the man who, uh, who's leading that, that study is an American man. And you know, if you've heard that story preached in church, a lot of times the application is, well, you know, God can calm all the storms in your life. And so this man was trying to get the, the refugees to think about, you know, okay, well, what are the storms in your life? You know, maybe it's that you're away from home or maybe you're having struggles with your family or in your marriage. You know, what are the storms in your life that Jesus wants to calm? But these refugees just couldn't get past one little detail in the text. And it was the fact that Jesus calms the storm. And so they begin to kind of chatter very excitedly in their own language as they're reading this story. And the, the American guy can't quite figure out what's going on. And he finally asks them some questions and he realizes they just can't get over the fact that Jesus calms the storm. And they begin to say, you know, oh my goodness, you know, this Jesus must have been a very powerful man if he could just speak a word and all of a sudden the sea became calm. You know, here, here this American guy was trying to like, you know, make the text and make the story all about, you know, us, you know, sort of a man-centered story. But simply by the, the, the words of scripture themselves, the refugees kind of had the point maybe a little bit more even than he did, that it's actually a story about God and God's power. So uh, there was a uh, theologian named R.C. Sproul who said it like this. He once said, I think... The greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests his power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in a program, in a methodology, in a technique, in anything and everything but that in which God has placed it, his word. He alone has the power to change lives for eternity, and that power is focused on the scriptures. And so... One of the key ingredients in the revival that happens in Nineveh is the word of God. In the book of Jeremiah, God's word is spoken of as a hammer that can break rock. And that even includes the rockiest, stoniest heart. I want to draw just two implications for you to be thinking about as you're in your groups tonight. Number one, do you let God's word have power in your own life? 
So when you read the Bible, do you spend more time thinking of how it should convict other people or more time letting it convict you? Uh, some of you guys may have heard of Francis Chan. Anyone ever heard of Francis Chan? He's a, he's a pastor. He's got a great little line where you know, he, he says, you know, imagine if your mom and dad come to you and they say, clean your room. Now, you know, I know some of you guys probably don't live under your parents' roofs anymore. So maybe, you're, you know, maybe your mom and dad, maybe, maybe you've kind of, they, they no longer tell you that. But maybe, you know, maybe you've had that experience before. Mom and dad say, clean your room. You know, imagine how crazy it would be. Just think, you know, think what your parents would do if instead of cleaning your room, you know, you like pulled off a whole stack of, you know, pulled out a whole stack of dictionaries and commentaries from your bookshelf. And, and you just kind of said, you know, I wonder, I wonder exactly, like, what tense of verb is that word clean? You know, what do they really mean by that, you know? Uh, you know, maybe they don't really mean clean your room now. You know, maybe, like, if you were to, you know, read it in the Greek, you know, maybe it would mean clean your room later. You know, just think how your parents would react if that's how you responded. Well, you know, it's not that those, that, you know, studying scripture is bad. In fact, I'm probably maybe the guiltiest of the lot and really enjoying that. Uh, but God's word is meant to change us. You know, it's been said that information minus application equals stagnation. You're going to stagnate in your Christian life if you never allow God's word to speak to you and change you. But it's also been said information plus application equals transformation. So, question for you guys tonight, do you let God's word have power in your life? And then, do you let God's word have power in your speech? There are many of you guys who I know just really would love to see friends in your life, maybe family members, come to know Jesus. And maybe you've even put yourself out there to share Jesus with some of those people in your life. It can be so easy to feel like I can't ever do that because I just don't have the right words. I want to read you something that Jesus said. This is when Jesus is sending out his disciples to tell people about him. He says, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. It's pretty encouraging, isn't it? It's not about how clever your words are. And in fact, some of the best words you can use are the words of scripture. You know, I've seen people come to faith when they've read and understood Scripture for the first time. So the Word of God is so powerful. That's what convicts the Ninevites. That's what leads, one of the ingredients that leads to the revival they have there. So that's one thing to notice. But let's uh, keep going. Look at, uh, let's look at verses 5 and 6 really quick. Uh, it says, The people of Nineveh believed in God. And they declared a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat on ashes. So, second thing to notice tonight, notice what this chapter says about the nature of true repentance. The nature of true repentance. So, verse 5, it says, They believed in God and... They declared a fast and put on sackcloth. So you notice that there's actually like a change in belief. Repentance literally means like a change of mind. So there's a belief change, but that belief change 
is accompanied by action. Repentance equals faith and then with like faith with action attached. You know, so for example, imagine this time you're the parent. You know, crazy thought, right? You know, I don't, I don't think we have any parents in the room. Um, but, you know, just imagine one day. You know, imagine one day that you are a parent. And imagine you've got a couple kids. One of your kids is hitting another. And, and so, you know, they kind of come, come to you and one of them tells on the other. And let's say that you confront the guilty, the guilty kid, the, the guilty party. And let's say they say sorry. You know, maybe you um, extend your forgiveness to them. You kind of make things better. But then, you know, you, you turn around. You walk away, and then five minutes later, like, your son or daughter has just gone back to, to hitting his sibling, or his or her sibling, again. So the question is, did they really repent? No. Because they're not sorry for what they did. They're sorry for the consequences of what they did, that they're going to get in trouble. And by the way, it's not just kids who do this. Adults do the exact same thing. To be sorry for the consequences of your sin is not the same thing as being sorry for sin. And that's why the Bible says that repentance will always go together with action. Here's a verse from the book of Acts. This is when Paul is talking to King Agrippa. He says, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. And that's not to say that your deeds or your actions save you, but it's been said that you know, we're saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. That if it's a genuine faith, that there actually is going to be action that comes out of that. Or it's sometimes been said, uh, faith is the root of salvation, but good works are the fruit of salvation. So the reason why in repentance, faith and action always are found together is because repentance isn't just repenting of the consequences of your sin. You know, no one wants to be stuck with sin's consequences once those consequences catch up to you. Repentance is repenting of sin itself. It's saying, Jesus, I, you know, I hate not just the consequences of my sin. I hate sin. You know, my sin hurts you. My sin made you have to suffer and die on the cross. You know, if you guys have seen the movie Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, you might actually know that when, you know, there's the scene where um, Jesus is stretched out on the cross and they're about to hammer the nails into his hands and you can only kind of see the hand. You can't quite see who it is holding the hammer. When they shot that scene, Mel Gibson, the director, he insisted that he be the one with his hand on that hammer because he wanted to just as deeply as he could just internalize that fact that, you know, it was my sin that put him there. And so in true repentance, it's saying, I hate sin. I hate the kind of person sin is making me become. Jesus, would you rescue me? That's the heart of repentance. And if that's really your heart towards sin, well, then of course there's going to be action that goes along with that because you won't even want to stay the same. You know, they say that a person isn't going to change until the consequences of staying the same outweigh the consequences of making a change. And if you hate sin, you're actually going to be like pretty super excited to like make a change in your life. Now, just before kind of jumping on to one last thing, I, I want to just offer a kind of an interesting caveat since we're kind of meditating on, on this idea of repentance that you see in the, in the chapter. So if, you know, if all that I've said is true so far, if that's what repentance is and if Christians are called to repent, you know, you might kind of think that that means that Christians then just go around, you know, just hating themselves 
all the time, just, you know, always feeling guilty, always feeling ashamed. And I want to tell you tonight that that couldn't be further from the truth. Or at least, I'm not saying that there aren't Christians who are in that mode, but that's as far from what the gospel points us to as could be. Let me read you another verse. This is from the book of 2 Corinthians, where Paul says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So what does that mean? In other words, if you really repent, the result is the opposite of feeling guilty and ashamed. The result is you'll feel set free. You're not going to be shackled to regret. Now, what's interesting about this is that if this is really true, what that means is sometimes what we might think of as repentance is really just pride in disguise. You know, we can be a little bit like the younger brother in the, the story of the prodigal son. You know, that guy, remember the story, he, he runs away from his dad. Eventually, kind of life catches up with him. He becomes, uh, he, he comes to a place where he's really at rock bottom. And so he goes back to his dad just because, you know, there's food at his dad's house. <laughs> and, you know, he kind of says to himself, you know, my dad is never going to accept me again. But maybe if I just grovel, he says, I'll grovel. And if I grovel enough to my father, then maybe, maybe he'll accept me. Do you know what that really is? That's pride. That's pride talking. Because it's the younger brother saying, I am strong enough. I'm good enough. I'm capable enough to earn my father's love and acceptance. If I just, you know, if I just grovel enough times, if I just, you know, do enough reps, then... I can, you know, I can, I can leverage him. I can earn his acceptance. But the problem is, and, and you, we all know this, deep, deep down, we know that you can never grovel enough. You, 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 guilt runs too deep for that. Maybe you've been in that kind of situation where you just, you're just trying to, you know, grovel before God again and again and again, and then you repent again and again and again, and you still feel guilty. That's why true repentance, when you, the way that you know that you've come to a place of true repentance, true repentance always feels like being disabled. You know, so for example, have you ever had your arm in a cast before? You know, like when I was four years old, I think it was, I broke my arm, had my arm in a cast. If you ever had your arm or a leg or something in a cast, like you can't move it. Like it's disabled. You can't use it. <laughs> and a person who's truly repentant knows that they are spiritually disabled. They know that no amount of groveling before God is ever enough. No amount of effort is ever going to suffice. And you actually can see this hinted at in the text. So notice in verse 6, it talks about what happens to the king of Nineveh when he hears about Jonah's message. And it says he does four things, each of which point to real repentance. So number one, he steps down from his throne. In other words, he surrenders his authority. Number two, he takes off his royal robe. That word for robe can also mean glory. Like that royal robe was sort of his symbol of how great he was as the king. He surrenders his pride. Number three, he puts on sackcloth. This would have been something that everybody could see. It was public. So he's surrendering his reputation. And then, last of all, it says he sits on the ashes. 
And I, you know, I, just, I was thinking about that image this week. I was just thinking, you know, like a person who's sitting on the ashes, like can you imagine an image that's just more like weak and debilitated and just helpless than someone who's literally just sitting in a bunch of dirt and ash? And I think like this to me is a pointer to how in repentance you're even surrendering your own ability to save yourself. So, you know, I don't know where you guys are in the room tonight. Maybe you're here and you've, maybe you do feel a sense of guilt or regret or shame for something in your past. And maybe you've gone to God about it, you've prayed about it, you've repented over it, and you still feel guilty about it. You still have regrets about it. If that's the case, do you know what that actually means? It actually means that your sorrow isn't godly sorrow, it's worldly sorrow, which that verse says leads to death. It means you're, it's actually like pride repentance. It's not real repentance. And the good news is it actually means that you haven't yet come to the good news of the grace of God. Like that still is available to you. You haven't been set free by grace. All repentance begins with a vision of the grace of God. And you see this in the text too, by the way. Look at verse 8. Every person and animal must put on sackcloth. And notice, notice this order. Two things. The order is, number one, must cry earnestly to God. And everyone, number two, must turn from their evil way of living. Notice what the text says. It puts turning to God first before like being able to like unshackle yourself from all of the evil ways and the sin and the stuff you don't like. There's actually another verse in the New Testament that kind of says the same thing. First Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9. They tell how you turned to God from idols. Notice it doesn't say you turned from idols to God. It says, no, you turned to God from idols. Turning from sin starts with turning to God. It starts with getting a vision of who God really is, including that he's loved you and accepted you in his son Jesus. And so what that means is that true repentance is going to leave you with an incredibly unique self-image. Because on the one hand, you're going to be the humblest person on earth. You know, you're, you know that your sin was so bad that it nailed Jesus to the cross. And so when you sin, you're not going to try to deny it. You're not going to try to excuse it. You're not going to try to minimize it. You're not going to lie about it. You're just going to admit it and say, you know what? I did that. I wish I hadn't, but I, you know, it was me. I confess. <laughs> but just because you're aware of the depth of sin, that doesn't mean you're going to hate yourself. Because the other side, the flip side, is that you know that Jesus is the only person in the whole world whose opinion of you really counts, and he knows all about your sin, and he loves you with a love that's greater than the size of the whole universe. And so you're going to be humble, and you're going to be confident all at the same time. Isn't that crazy? That's what real repentance does. Uh, Corrie Ten Boom is the Dutch Christian uh, who survived the Nazi concentration camp. We mentioned her last week. And she once said, uh, this is pretty interesting. She says, if after having been forgiven for a sin, we are still worrying about it, even for five minutes more, we are robbing both him and ourselves of much joy. I want to read that one more time. If after having been forgiven for a sin, we are still worrying about it, even for five minutes more, we are robbing both him and ourselves of much joy. In other words, if the gospel is really true, you can have a much bigger 
windshield than rearview mirror. You know, there might be stuff in the rearview mirror, stuff from your past that you don't really like, but the gospel kind of allows you to say, you know what, like that big windshield is bigger than my rearview mirror. And when I look at that windshield, I see God, I see Jesus, I see how much he loves even a wretch like me that I'm going to focus on that rather than getting hung up by the ball and chain of all the stuff in my past. True repentance leads to freedom, so don't settle for anything else. And then last of all, and really quickly, uh, we've looked at noticing uh, the power of the word of God, noticing the nature of true repentance, and then last of all, uh, just notice yet again the theme of this book. Notice the mercy of God. Notice that the only reason that revival happens in this story is because God gave Jonah a second chance. If Jonah had gotten what he deserved, he would have died at sea. You know, he, the Ninevites never would have encountered the living God. But God is a merciful God. And because he's a merciful God, he, not, he, he spares Jonah and he gives him another opportunity. He calls Jonah to go to Nineveh again. And the wording of his call that second time, it's almost exactly the same thing he tells him in chapter 1. You know, uh, Tim Keller is a pastor who, I remember one time listening to a message of his and just said something that has never left me. You know, he said that sometimes, you know, if you're a Christian, you, you, you do something that you regret. You know, you, you kind of feel like, oh man, I really screwed that up. And you know, it used to be before I screwed up that I was on plan A, you know, God's plan A for my life. And you know, that was like his best for me. But then because I screwed up, well now, you know, he switched me and I'm on plan B. And plan B is okay, you know, it still ends up in heaven, but you know, it just, it wasn't really what God wanted. It wasn't the best. And I just want to tell you tonight, there is no such thing as plan B. There's no such thing as plan B. And I can say that on the authority of scripture itself, because in scripture, Romans 8, 28, it says, God works all things for good according to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And, you know, like all things work together for good for those who love God. You know, doesn't that include your sin? Isn't your sin a thing? Isn't it then true that God is able to take even the biggest sins and tragedies in our lives and he can work them for good? He can work them into his plan A. Isn't that what he did to the greatest sin and tragedy in all of human history when Jesus was crucified? And he worked that into his plan of salvation. It wasn't even an afterthought. It says in Revelation that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. So there's no such thing as plan B because we serve a God who's a merciful God. It means your mistakes aren't too big for him. It means that you're not powerful enough to screw up your own life. Do you know the God of mercy in this book? Do you know the mercy of God uh, not just in this book, but in Jesus Christ. Because in light of Jesus, we actually know that Jonah was really pointing ahead to, to someone else. You know, in this story, it's because of God's mercy and Jonah's obedience that the Ninevites were saved. But in our story, it's because of God's mercy and Jesus' obedience that we are saved. Jesus lived a perfect life He's the only one who never sinned. He was completely sinless. He completely obeyed the will of the Father. Even to the point of death, it says in Philippians chapter 2, he was obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, 
And he saw, he got a little whiff, a little taste of the infinite suffering that he was about to go through on the cross when all of the weight of the sin and the punishment that we deserve was on his shoulders. He, he got a little taste of that. You know, he, he anticipated what was coming. And even there in the garden, he was in obedience to the will of the Father when he said, you know, God, if there's any, you know, Father, if there's any way that you can save humanity without me having to suffer, God, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was obedient even to the point of death. It's because of the mercy of God. It's because of the obedience of Jesus that we are saved. And so that's actually, if you zoom out, what chapter 3 of Jonah is really all about. We're going to head over to groups now. Um, on your handouts, there are some questions about the, the actual text of Scripture. And then some questions that you can look at to discuss kind of how this applies to our own lives. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Father, thank you that you're a God of mercy. Thank you that you're a God who gives second chances and even more chances than that. Um, but Lord, I pray that we would just take uh, you seriously. God, show us what real repentance looks like when we do go off the path. Um, and Lord, thank you that um, even though we do that, just as Jonah did that, that um, there's no way that we can ever outrun the mercy and the grace that you've shown us in Jesus. And we pray that in his name. Amen.